Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. Hello again, my name is Dr. Michael Corrin, and I'm your host today for this episode of MedEvidence in our Two Docs Talk series. And I have an incredibly special guest today. And not only is she incredible just as a person, but she's also incredible in my life because this is Dr. Lisa Kirvin Dawes, who was actually my medical school partner at Beth Israel for third year clerkship in internal medicine. Do you remember those glorious days, yes, Lisa? Yes, I do. And yeah. the night calls, yes. Yeah. So um, we were both Harvard medical students together back in the day. And Lisa and I became lifelong friends and also resources for each other because Lisa is a world of knowledge. She trained in internal medicine. Then she trained in public health. Mm -hmm. She worked in in New York for a while while I was there, moved to Maryland to do Mm -hmm. some work, and then moved down to Jamaica, which is part of her roots, and has been practicing medicine in Jamaica and is a leader in medicine in Jamaica as we speak. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. So we thought a neat thing to do would be to talk about how medicines develop from interesting natural means. Mm -hmm. So we have a pharmaceutical industry right now, and the pharmaceutical industry has its ways of discovering new compounds and and new ideas for therapies. And nowadays, there's more and more biological therapies that are based on genetics. But a lot of really cool stuff developed just by observing nature – and observing natural things, and then coming up with therapies based on those observations. True. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, because of our, uh, the, because of the fact that we met at Harvard, and, and Harvard has a, a, one of the interesting traditions, which is the place where ether anesthesia was developed. I thought maybe we'll start with that. Uh, you know, Lisa and I obviously are friends, and we've been to parties together, and you know, they serve alcoholic parties, and, and that's part of our culture. And ether actually came from that idea, that cultural idea of having a party together and getting a little intoxicated. Getting a little high. There you go. And so back in the in the late late 1700s and the early 1800s, uh, particularly in uh, in the UK, the chemists that were working there was a guy named I think was his name was Humphrey Davy, who discovered a lot of the elements of the periodic table, including sodium. And uh, him and his, his buddies would figure out how to mix things together and, and create all different substances. So they figured out pretty early on that if you combine alcohol with sulfuric acid, it gives off a gas. Mm-hmm. And this gas turns out to be ether. And then if you sniff this gas, you get a little buzz. And they would have ether parties that were the rage amongst college students back then, starting in the UK, but they started doing this in, uh, in the US as well. And then obviously physicians who are often college educated, not all, by the way, back then, some, a lot of them were, they kind of took this college uh, tradition and they started thinking, well, how, how can we use this? And um, back in 1842, Crawford Long was a surgeon practicing in the South in Georgia. And probably based on his college experience of sniffing ether at parties, he kind of figured out that you can use it to give people pain relief during surgeries. Right. So he started doing surgeries where he got his patients to sniff the ether and they fall asleep or get, you know, intoxicated and not know what's going on and cut off their toes or whatever he had to do for surgically. So this was going on for a little while. And simultaneously with that, there was a guy named uh, Thomas Morton. 
Actually, it was William uh, Thomas Morton. A dentist. Yeah, he was a dentist. Very good. And um, he married uh, somebody who was a very, a very fancy family in Boston. Boston was very snobby back then. And um, he married the daughter of a congressman, if I remember correctly. And they said, well, you can get married. We're not crazy about our daughter marrying a dentist. But if you take courses at Harvard Medical School, then we'll, we'll let that happen so you can bring yourself up to a higher station. And so um, Dr. Morton did that. And he, and back in those days, you didn't, you, you basically paid for lectures at Harvard and every other medical school. So it wasn't, it wasn't such a formal program, but mm-hmm. you would go there, you would have the famous professors of the time or the, the prominent people of the time giving lectures and the students would pay a fee mm-hmm. for the lecture. And then you took enough of those lectures and you could say, well, I was educated at Harvard. So that, that was kind of the way things worked. So he started taking lectures at Harvard and got to know some of the people there. And he was also a little bit of an entrepreneur. He was trying to figure out how to make money doing things. And he eventually uh, showed that in his dental practice, he was able to put people to sleep and extract teeth and do things of that nature. And then he approached Dr. Warren, who was a very prominent surgeon at Mass General Hospital, mm-hmm. and said, I'd like to show that you can actually do a surgery while somebody's asleep from ether anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And they set up this uh, big event back in, I think it was October of, of 1848, in a place called the Ether Dome. And you've had some experience there. It's this amphitheater that has these uh, very tall, uh, narrow chairs, chairs that are incredibly uncomfortable. And that's Do they a, still have those? Yeah. Well, when I was there, they did. Hmm. We graduated at the same time, so it was. Yeah, I was hoping well. no, but I was hoping they would have changed that because uh, everybody. No, no, I, I don't think they would change about that because it's a national monument. I think to preserve it the way it used to be, but they were incredibly uncomfortable, hard wooden seats that we took lectures in during medical school, and you can never get comfortable in them. Uh, but it was an operating theater, and they they actually started showing operations back way before ether anesthesia. Even if I remember correctly, it was like in the 1820s where they were doing that. And then in 1848, there was the first public demonstration of using ether mm-hmm. as an anesthetic for surgery. And John Warren was a very prominent surgeon. He agreed to work with Morton, who was the anesthesiologist, and they did a, a painless surgery. But the interesting part of the controversy is, is that this was being done by other physicians, most prominently Crawford Long. And um, the Mass General people got all the credit because they published it. So if, so that, that means that if you don't publish, you don't get any credit. Exactly right. It's a really important part of the story is it doesn't matter who comes up with the idea. It matters who publishes the idea. But by publishing it, they also were much more structured than what Crawford Long did, which is a theme that we talk a lot about here at MedEvidence. And that is, is that you can have a great idea. The great idea may even work beautifully, but unless it's part of some sort of structured experiment, you're not going to get full credit for it, nor do you know how good it is. So back then, this was um, set up with the, the, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine or whatever, whatever the precursor was, and they had uh, the press there. And they had a protocol that they followed in terms of using the anesthesia and then ultimately during the surgery. They picked a patient ahead of time. They got the patient's agreement to uh, be part of it. And lo and behold, they show this publicly. And it was published by the New England Journal. And it got picked up all around the world. And it was actually the first time that the Europeans, who were very snobby about their advances in medicine at that time, 
they were is the first time the Europeans actually gave the Americans a little bit of respect for coming up with an innovation. And it kind of launched uh, certainly the preeminence of American medicine in surgery and ultimately was the first major breakthrough where American medicine introduced an idea to the rest of the world. Okay. So that's an example of going from a party drug to something that really revolutionized how we do things in medicine Mm -hmm. and based largely on having a simple structured experiment and publishing it. So there's been a debate about, I know this still goes back and forth about, should Crawford Long get credit for developing anesthesia or uh, Thomas Morton, William Thomas Morton? But um, that debate will go on. But I'm sure uh, Mass General will take credit for it. (laughs) (laughs) So anyhow, that's just one example. So so give us another example of of something that may be more uh, akin to what you do day to day, where there's a, a discovery that leads to some sort of innovation. Well, I mean, uh, the basic ones that we talk about, you know, opium. So we have the the opioid epidemic, but opium, we actually use morphine. Morphine we use daily. Mm -hmm. Um, Good example, something that comes from a plant that you kind of figure out over the years how to use it. So it also gets you high, also good for pain. But we have now evolved to a drug, but now we still have the opioid epidemic that we have to deal with. Right. Um, we also have taxol, which Good is example. from a tree, mm-hmm. and that is actually used for breast cancer. And interestingly enough, it was being used in South America to treat breast cancer as a as a herb. Really? <laughs> yeah. And there was a doctor working there who got breast cancer. And in doing her research, she actually used it as well as her own chemotherapy. Is that right? I didn't know that. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But that's actually, and we use that today as one of the basic drugs for breast cancer. <clears throat> I think I've talked to Dr. Corin before about a drug. Um, well, it's not. It's an herb that we use in the islands mm-hmm. for wound therapy. Mm-hmm. And working in Jamaica, we unfortunately run out of drugs a lot Mm. in our public hospitals and what we found that papain which is from papaya we prepare it a certain way and we put it on diabetic wounds Mm. and while i didn't do a protocol or publish by actually treating a lot of wounds Mm. and controlling their sugar better we decreased amputations by more than 75 percent wow that's crazy. So that would be called an observational right. experiment, which is you know the first level of coming up with an idea and developing the idea. Mm-hmm. And then you need to go from that observational experiment to a randomized experiment. We talk a lot about that in MedEvidence is that um, many observations will turn out to be valid, but some won't. Mm-hmm. And the only way you figure out what's valid and what may be uh, less effective is by doing a randomized study. I'm going to talk more about that process. But that that's a tremendous example of it. Um, another example of it, I guess, would be development of aspirin. Oh, right? Willowbark tree. Yeah, there you go, willowbark tree. And so that was actually known in antiquity to be a cure for headaches by just sleeping under a willow tree. And... Of course, um, it was synthesized, I guess, by the Bayer Company in Germany. At some point, they actually figured out what the 
the uh, active ingredient is in that willow bark that took away your headache. And of course, here you have aspirin. And you know, to this day, we do randomized clinical trials to see how well aspirin works. And what's crazy about it is that we know a lot about aspirin, but there's a lot that we still don't know, like what the best dose is for different reasons. What's the best dose to prevent a stroke? What's the best do- dose to use with other agents to prevent your heart arteries from getting clogged up again after a stent's placed? So interestingly, even something from antiquity that was first discovered based on observation that now is established as a good medical intervention still Mm -hmm. has lots of questions around exactly how to use it. True. So in our next episode, we're going to talk how we go from that observational stage to truly understanding how to dose products and in what patients to use them in the real world. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence Podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.com or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.